Hello. Hi. I'm Kelly Arlott. And I'm Sasha Kelly. And you're listening to another episode of That Classical Podcast. Welcome, everybody. Lovely to have you with us yet again. Uh, Today, we're very excited because we're heading over, we're going on a trip to South America to talk about two composers we absolutely love. And actually, I'm going to start with um, one composer I've mentioned on the podcast before, I think many moons ago. His name, Heitor Villalobos, Brazilian legend. Yes. I think I played his um, awesome saxophone uh, Fantasia. (laughs) Tell me if I'm wrong, listeners. Fantasy Uh, for the saxophone. (laughs) Exactly. But he is definitely one of my favourite composers. And I thought it's time. It's time to delve further, to dive into the depths of Heitor Villalobos. And uh, obviously, as you know, we begin with a 60 second biography. Sasha, are you ready to time me? Oh, yes, I am, Kelly. Ready? Yep. Steady? Oh, dear. Yep. Go. Heitor Villalobos was born in March 1887 in Rio de Janeiro. His dad was an amateur musician and Heitor loved music from a young age. He learned cello and clarinet and guitar growing up and was super interested in Brazilian folk music. Started performing as a teenager, then left home at 18. Became a musical tramp, travelling the country, playing cello and guitar wherever he went, absorbing Brazilian folk music and composing. Apparently he almost got captured by cannibals, but that probably really didn't happen. Eventually he settled down and became a cellist in the Rio Opera Company. 1913, got married to a pianist. She taught him piano, which is cute. Started composing, started getting published. Was a little bit influenced by Western classical music, but stayed hugely inspired by his native heritage. Often critics didn't like his dissonance and modernity of his work, but he kept Anyway, uh, musicians started performing his works around the world. He went to Paris in the 1920s, good times there, got great international reputation. 1930s, there was a revolution which meant he couldn't leave Brazil. So he was like, cool, I'll stay here. I'll improve music education and write patriotic bangers. And he did. In fact, in 1939, he made 30,000 kids sing the national anthem and some other stuff he had arranged. Found a Brazilian Academy of Music in 1945 and travelled the world performing. Got loads of commissions, composed concertos, piano, cello, guitar, harp and harmonica, symphonies and opera and even film scores. People didn't like that he was churning things out. He died in November 1959 in Rio. (gasps) Oh! You cleared the 60 seconds. Did I actually? You oh, are no. you are a brilliant a by by that was 59.18 on my count, Kelly. Oh so, my goodness. So wait, that means I could have given you like a whole second more of information. Oh, I'm no, so sorry. You could have given me a third of a second more info. Oh no, two thirds of a second more information. Okay. Good so, to know. Next time I will you know, uh, really make it worth your while. I mean, I'm, not to get off topic, Kelly, but I am. Um, you're really fast. You're really, really fast. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, just I'm gotta, really impressed. Got to get it, the information in there. You the just listeners. really cover like all the colour. So um, you might have something you want to talk about in particular, but I heard something about cannibals. Could you oh, please God. tell yeah. me Do you what know, is well, going on? I'm sorry because I can't because I literally, <laughs> I was scouring the internet for information and in a couple of places, it, there were always this just sort of throwaway line about his traveling around being like, oh, you know, the story is. So basically, yeah, when he was 18, his mum um, hated all his like cool, trendy music friends and thought they were bad influences on him. She wanted him to become a doctor, but he was like, nah. And he basically became like a musical traveling man, um, kind of li- playing in street bands and traveling the country and like absorbing all the kind of folk music of, of Brazil, basically. Mm. And uh, yeah, apparently he almost got captured by cannibals uh, oh because he goodness. was like talking to these indigenous like tribes about their their music. And anyway, I don't know if that's true, but look, I think the main Villalobos headline here is that he was super proud 
of mm. the, his Brazilian musical heritage and, and the indigenous cultures, like the ones I mentioned, around him. You know, from Portuguese to African to Native American, he celebrated them musically basically every chance he got. Uh, and he wrote pieces that were based on urban street music, folk tales, the sounds of the jungle, the sounds of indigenous instruments like the nose flute. He loved a bit of bird song. He loved a carnival parade. You name it, he did it. <laughs> and and I found the best ever quote from him when he was touring Europe with his music a little later on in his career. Apparently he said, I don't use folklore. I am the folklore. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Which is the most incredible statement. Um, but yeah, he, he basically just wrote tons of music. He wrote 2,000 works in total uh, from Whoa. solo guitar pieces, yeah, to, to operas, you know, whatever. He, he just went for it. And he was pretty much self-taught, which is the amazing thing. And yeah, he, he basically just absorbed everything around him and, and learned from that. And he was, to a degree, interested in, in Western music, which is something I'll talk about later. He, mm-hmm. he loved Bach, he loved Wagner and Puccini, but like conforming to that classical, traditional Western style just wasn't his, his main concern. That's amazing. I, t- I can't yeah. say that I know much by him at all. I mean, well, and 2,000 works, that's like an incredible amount. I that's know, like Bach territory of like putting that amount of music out there. It is. No, I know. And he wasn't, you know, he did so much to to put like Brazilian music on the map like internationally, mm. but he also bigged up classical music itself in Brazil, which was super cool. Like towards the end of his life, he started making these massive improvements to music education in Brazil. And he was like put in charge of it. He was like in charge of music education in Brazil in the 1930s and ended up co-founding the Brazilian Academy of Music. That's amazing. He's a great guy. All these achievements, but no wonder he was walking around. I mean, someone who's like achieved a lot, but also is walking around going like, I don't, you know, I am folk music. I like, am the folk. It would have made him like a little bit, um, yeah, hard to deal with at a dinner party. I reckon. Well, you know what? And actually, um, I mentioned it very briefly in the sixty seconds. But towards the end of his life, he he basically just started like whacking out commissions all over the shop, and he lost a bit of his. I think that clearly his like hubris uh, uh, sort of made him slightly unpopular. With he critics. sold out, as they'd yeah. say. Oh my God, tell me about it. The comments from the critics included, and I quote, that his music was bankrupt, uh, a piano tuner's orgy, uh, that it raked the very depths of banality and my favourite, truly the kind of music that should never get written. So there we are. God, they are... That's brutal. (laughs) I know, Absolutely brutal. brutal. Uh, But look, let's ignore that. Let's just ignore the horrible critics. Let's start with our first piece. And we begin with probably his most popular and performed work, his Baquianas Brasileiras. Uh, Sasha, are you across these? I am not familiar, Kelly. Okay. <laughs> On a no scale worries. of zero to ten, I am a zero. <laughs> Excellent. Well, welcome, welcome. Uh, we Just wanted to be honest. Together. Yeah. Just no, wanted no. to lay Love my that. cards on the table. Love it. <laughs> well, look. I'll tell you all about it. It's a series of nine suites, basically, for various instruments and voices. He wrote them across 15 years between 1930 and 1945. And the super interesting thing about these is that Villa Lovos was playing around with combining Brazilian folk elements, which he bloody loved, as we've discussed, with the style of Johann Sebastian Bach. 
and baroque music so get this i didn't even realize this each piece has a back side bacchianas and the brazilian side brasileiras so that's the title isn't that great my whole life i was aware of this not my whole life but for for several years i was aware of this piece in the room i was was just keenly aware of uh of this piece uh but no i always thought bacchianas was like a brazilian word that i didn't understand but now i understand that it's it's just bach bachish so here we are learning together welcome everybody uh so all of the Bacchianas Brasileiras suites are super diverse in their scoring. Mm. So some of them are really small chamber work. Some of them are full orchestral bangers. And today we're going to talk about the big one, number five, Ooh. called Aria, which is the Baroque Bach title, and Cantilena, which is the Brazilian title. So you'll see it written down as just Aria, Cantilena. Mm-hmm. And he, he wrote this one in 1938. It scored for an ensemble of eight cellos and voice. And you know what? After a lot of a lot of eyeing <laughs> at the beginning. Um, the soprano sings this sort of really beautiful poem about the painful beauty of Brazilian twilight. Um, and then hums the melody like an... It's weird, though. She like hums the melody at the end like a sort of operatic theremin uh, into this like haunting conclusion. It's so beautiful. Shall we just take a listen? Let's have a listen. Sasha Baroque with Brazilian soul. Uh, what are your thoughts? Did I love it? it. I actually, yeah. it sounded familiar when I started hearing it. Yeah, I was toying with the idea of playing just instrumental versions because I think, and if you recognize it, but mm. didn't necessarily know it was a vocal piece, you may have heard like a piano transcription of it because there are loads and people have definitely done various versions of it just just instrumentally yeah um because obviously it's quite it's quite a difficult well, it's kind uh, of, one to it's sing it's kind of like a vocalese right it didn't it is exactly yeah, is. yeah okay yeah, yeah. where they just like pick a vowel and sing it exactly so along. that's the beginning of it and i tell you it does go on for a while dame Curie, <laughs> i don't mind listening to that for a while but it goes on for ages and then the middle bit is this poem about like, oh my goodness, the moon, it's so nice. <laughs> and, then, and then the end is literally, they're like, like a UFO. Uh, but it's, it's very haunting and lovely when a good singer does it. Well, I've got a challenge if I could put it out there, Kelly, because oh I know okay. we do have some Brazilian listeners. If anyone takes a picture of the beauty of the sunset, that is so yeah. devastatingly beautiful. I'd love that to hurts see it. You. That yeah. hurts you. That hurts because it's just so beautiful. Yeah, I would like some proof of just how like beautiful it is. <laughs> yes, to our Brazilian listeners, please show us the inspiration for this piece. And uh, yeah, I, I highly suggest listening to all of number five of Bacchianas Brasileiras. The rest of them are super interesting. Like the way he merges the Baroque style with that like classic folky um, Brazilian style is super super fascinating so go just go and take a listen they're really really good 
And uh, yes, send us that picture of a Brazilian sunset. Oh, yes, can. please. That classical podcast. Next! Well, look, listen, listen up. I basically could not have actually lived with myself if I'd passed on the chance to play a harmonica concerto on this oh. podcast. Like, I'd have to go, I'd have to go on several long walks, I'd have to dye my hair a different colour to get over something like that. So I'm going to do it. I think, I mean, you are a brave, brave woman charting new frontiers that I, yeah. I have never traversed. Thank Basically. you. I exactly. I I I'm <laughs> gonna talk about Haytor's harmonica concerto, and I'm not harmonica. sorry. Harmonica, like who? Yeah. What? I'm sorry. I'm so perplexed. Look, I I understand your confusion because I'm there with you, and I imagine maybe when he was a street musician, cool man, he maybe messed around with harmonica. A street then, musician, kind of cool man. <laughs> yeah, you know that classic um, genre. But indeed. It is a concerto. It's a real concerto, just like any other concerto. It's, uh, it's this one's three movements. It, it lasts twenty-one minutes. Twenty-one that, minutes. It's a lot of harmonica for one afternoon. To be completely honest with you, you know, you might you might not want to hear a harmonica ever again after you finish. But that's not to say you don't enjoy it at the time. Is it a harmonica. bit like what do they say? Like when you see a sheep talking or something? Or what's that famous saying that it's like? Of is course, you can. Probably. Oh, no, I've totally lost the phrase, but it's like, well, if you can see a frog talk, then of course you're going to stop. It doesn't mean you want to hear what the frog's saying, but like, it's amazing that it's doing that. Oh I've totally God. stuffed up this phrase. I've oh, totally forgotten that. what it is, I think, but I feel the same way about the harmonica. <laughs> I think it is an Australian thing because you probably have more frogs than, than average. That's true. Uh, That's probably that are poisonous, um, dare I say. But frankly, you're right. This is essentially a frog concerto that you don't necessarily want to hear but you're like that's interesting so great and just to give you you asked me for some harmonica context earlier Sasha and here it is I'm gonna give it to you I'm excited the harmonica kind of gained respect in the classical world around the 1930s apparently when a virtuoso player called Larry Adler started impressing everyone um with the new chromatic harmonica that I think was invented in the 1920s. Wow. And if you want, there's actually proof of this. I'm promi- I'm not making it up <laughs> because, because after attending one of Adler's concerts, none other than Rafe Vaughan Williams, British babe, wow. composer of Lark Ascending, wrote a piece for him. And I made myself listen to it, Sasha. And it's called Romance in D flat, D flat, for strings, piano and harmonica. And it's weird and it's not my favourite, but please take a listen because it's there. It exists. Oh my God, Kelly, you're just rocking my world. Okay, I studied the euphonium. (laughs) I studied one of the weirdest instruments that people have ever heard of. And I... There is more music for the harmonica that you just described in the last yes. five minutes than there is for the euphonium. I am I'm so shocked sorry. to my core. I mean, that very might core. be a bit of an exaggeration, but still, I am you know shocked. What? <laughs> I was also shocked and I remain shocked. And if you listen to that uh, Romance in D by Ray Williams, you're going to remain shocked. Oh, well, I want to hear everyone's thoughts on that too. That's oh, also God. like, send us your emails, <laughs> oh, please. But anyway, okay. look, back to Villalobos, back to his concerto. He wrote it in 1955 for another apparently harmonica virtuoso called John Sebastian. It premiered in Jerusalem, interestingly, in 1959. 
the second movement, the Andante, it's full of lush harmonies. Would you believe it? And of course, it's full of that Villa Lobos like folky flair. Shall we? Shall we just give it a spin, Sasha? Kelly, you have me hook, line, and sinker. Like I'm so ready for this. <laughs> some feelings okay (laughs) (laughs) tell me tell me everything this might be really offensive but i'm gonna say it anyway because if you can't say offensive things it's like piazzola and a bad western had a love child and made sweet sweet music yeah for the harmonica to play like morricone yeah piazzola yes had a awful love child um and I don't even want to think about that, but um, I know what you mean. And that goes back to the frog analogy. You don't, you don't really want to listen to yeah, that. Yeah, I just every felt day. like Clint Eastwood was day. about to open my door every five seconds. It's like, but, but where's the horse? Where's the white horse? Where's Clint? Like, what's but, going on? But, but did you enjoy the the merging? of worlds i did i did actually i do think the orchestration is really lush and i think it must have been we'll get to it in a second because i'm going to talk about a contemporary of villa lobos and i feel like there's something in the music of that time where there's these really luscious strings and the orchestration does have a particular flavor to it that's really attractive yeah exactly like there and and i actually think the melody like let's ignore the <laughs> instrumentation but like the melody of the harmonica was actually very beautiful and and uh, like the skill the skill that it yeah. must have taken probably yeah. to play that and to make it sing in that way like have you ever tried i don't know about you when i try to play a harmonica it's horrific it sounds like a hoover like i don't really <laughs> it never goes well for me oh, it's no a disaster finesse. i breathe all over it and it's just like yeah. a whole yeah, exactly. bunch of notes it's at probably the same full time. of germs like oh i don't even want to think about it but I think like you've got to admit that that is an impressive feat like not only for the musician who plays it but like impressive that Villalobos managed to write something that actually is quite in its own way uh, very beautiful you know? I'm I'm really intrigued about this whole like secret society of music that I had no idea existed so I'm gonna go the, yeah harmonica yeah. society the harmonica yeah. world I agree. And you know what? To our listeners, if you know any fantastic harmonica pieces, please send them over. Oh my God. If if you're a harmonica player and and we've just been disparaging you for the last half hour, like I I truly apologize, but also let us know. Yes. Yeah, please. Tell me why. My, I need to be converted. Like, t- teach me your do you ways. Not, do you not already know why? Um, but look, I mean, that is a very interesting cross section of Hato Villalobos. 
Um, I would say definitely his Bacchianas Brasileiras are the the most famous thing that he wrote, the the most performed thing that he wrote. Mm. Um, but if you are interested in 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 sort of exploring his his works. Like there's just so much. As I said, there are 2000 works to his name. So you can really go on for a while. But he wrote really lovely things for guitar. He, uh, please revisit the saxophone Fantasia that I found a couple of years ago. I'll I'll, um, I'll post that again on Twitter because that was beautiful. But he just, he wrote loads of stuff. He wrote symphonies, string quartets, uh, chor- like choral stuff, vocal stuff. He really wrote everything. So go out, have a little uh, dig around and enjoy. I'm amazed, Kelly. I am absolutely amazed. Did you know that Classical Podcast has a Patreon with loads of bonus content and behind-the-scenes goodies? Yes, we do. But we want to say a massive thank you to a couple of patrons this month who've helped us out. Indeed. A huge thank you to Rochelle Brooks. Loch Nessie. Johannes. Youth. Adriana Delgado. Zachary. Josh Gordon. Nicholas Azule. Olaf. Jamie Zhang. Lorena Tola. And Pika. Thanks so much. We love making that classical podcast, but it does cost money. So boring things like website hosting, equipment, and little things that come up every now and then. The fact that you guys support us means we aren't out of pocket and we can put aside the time to do a great job that we're proud of. So thank you so much for supporting us. If you want to become a patron, head to patreon.com forward slash that classical podcast. Thank you so much for everyone who supports us and we hope to see you there. So, are you ready for me to talk about um, my composer now? I hope so. Who are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going to talk about Alberto Ginastera, who I'm really I, excited to talk about, actually. I just don't know who that is. Uh, I just don't you know, know what, who that Kelly, is. I didn't yeah. either, and I got this okay. album, and I used to it used to be my driving CD when I was in the oh, car, and okay. his first string quartet was the first piece on the album, and I was like, who? is this guy so you know when we were talking about topics I was like oh I need to go listen to more so that's basically it but why don't I start how we always do with our 60 second bio absolutely Sasha are you ready oh yeah Alberto Ginastero was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 1916 and he started playing music at the age of seven. He went to the local conservatorium at the age of 12. He graduated in 1935 with a gold medal. Then he went to the National Conservatorium. He wrote a piece halfway through uni that knocked everyone's stocks off. He wrote a graduation piece that was so impressive the school was like, here, here's a professorship. He went on the up and up. And then the government were like a bit dicey and they removed him from one of his schools. So Ginastero was like, see ya, got a grant, went to the US. He came back to Argentina. Ginastero got back into teaching, set up a new conservatorium but got in trouble politically again because the government Pop was like, through. change the name of your uni and he refused. He wrote heaps of music. A lot of it was premiered at big international festivals that made him so famous he could pick and choose his projects. He then started another school in Buenos Aires and through his contacts, students got to work with Copeland, Messin and Zanakis. He wrote a controversial opera which meant the production was canned and in protest, Hinostara was like, no one can play any of my music until you all get over yourselves. Hinostara's lady years were personal problems. His son became ill. He and his wife divorced. He met a new wife. They married. They went to Geneva where he continued to compose until his death in 19. 19- 1983. Oh, one minute exactly. Oh my god. Incredible. What an achievement. Oh. Amazing. So there's uh, so many <laughs> things to expand on there. The first thing I want to talk about is that he got a gold medal. Oh yeah. So graduating <laughs> somewhere. Well, I assume I assume so it was the gold medal for composition. So I think oh, that's like okay. the French conservatoires did the same kind of thing, which right. was like, you're the best 
in the school, here's a medal. Um, but what was even more? Yeah, I know. I'm like, where was my medal at school? But what was even more amazing is that his like composition that he wrote as his final exam piece was so good that the conservatorium instantly made him a professor. So it wasn't. That is insane. Yeah. It's like they weren't like, oh, go away and get a bit older. They were just like, oh, no, that's so good. Please teach here. So I just think that that's like, you know, he was really, really highly regarded from a really young Mm. age. And a lot of, Mm -hmm. a lot of, even though he only started playing music at seven, the word prodigious gets used about his composing a lot. And I assume that's because most composers take like a couple of decades to kind of hit their stride. Mm -hmm. And he was definitely like writing stuff that was getting premiered from like the time he was at uni. So they that is so annoying, yeah. but good for him. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> there you go. So he had like kind of two, two or three like major like themes to his writing, which was yeah. Like, what was his vibe? I want to know yeah. his vibe. So he was really into like nationalism music, and <laughs> sorry, God. So he had like he grouped his own music into three periods and two of them, one's called objective nationalism, the other is subjective nationalism, and the other is neo-expressionism. So a bit like Stravinsky Ooh. had <laughs> Yeah, I know. That basically they're all jargon words, but what you can say is like, you know, in the same way Stravinsky changed his style, or um if you're thinking about mm-hmm. visual art, like Picasso like had distinct eras, Hinastera mm-hmm. did the same kind of thing. So right. I'm also pronouncing his name Hinastera because when I went to Forbo and every time I've heard it, <laughs> that's what people pronounce it as. But in quite a few notes, I found that he preferred it pronounced with the soft G as in George. So it could be Ginastera G- as well. Huh, yeah, maybe, so um, I'm kind of doing it out of habit, but... Yeah, was that because he maybe wanted like um on the like internationally to I just think be a so. bit more like accessible? And I like- kind of talked about it briefly, but um the government at the time in Argentina, and I've got to say my South American history is pretty dicey, but um <laughs> you know um Eva Perón, like the Perón government mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. don't cry for me Argentina is based on, of course, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much the the limits of my (laughs) South American political knowledge. But he was often, a bit like Shostakovich was when he was composing, is that Hinastera was often coming up against, they were deciding that he was out of fashion or back in fashion or out of fashion. And Mm -hmm. so that really affected his career trajectory. So he actually Mm -hmm. like really focused on his education work and a lot of his composing, especially in the later decades, was international success because he was just so sick of the government being like into him and then out of him. And that's also why he moved to Geneva because he eventually just was like, I'm sick of this. I'm going to go to Europe. And so he died in um, Geneva, which I think like when the first half of all his compositions are, he himself called them nationalistic that's kind of sad that he died away from his homeland. Yeah, so it was a bit sad. of a complicated mm. relationship, I think. Well, what are we going to hear from him today? What national, national national piece? piece? Are we well, go I think for? well, let's start with one of his earlier ones. We're going to listen to Estancias, as the Ooh. lovely man on Forvo encouraged me to pronounce it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well done, Forvo. Amazing. Um, so basically, the 
beginning of this piece is that this American ballet company called the American Ballet Caravan came to Buenos Aires and mm-hmm. did a five-month tour of South America in 1941. And so while they were in Buenos Aires, um, they were performing and one of their like their artistic director would go and hear other stuff and so what they were performing on their tour was Aaron Copeland's piece called Billy the Kid um which was written in 1938 like a couple of years earlier but so the artistic director was called Kirstein and one they were in Buenos Aires he was like oh I'll go see what other people like the people of Argentina are writing and what they think is great music and he <laughs> went to a concert and he heard Hinastera's ballet called Panambi, which had its premiere like around the same time. And it was being performed at the same ballet theater. And he was just like, this is amazing. I love this work. And commissioned Hinastera to write the American Ballet Caravan a new piece. So he was only, I think he was like two or three years out of uni at that time. So that's like a fairly big break to get as Mm, just a young student unfortunately then the ballet company folded so it never (laughs) kind of got its big premiere but um yeah it it was regarded as a masterpiece and it did get premiered several years later and um and you know it wasn't it wasn't the worst thing it was just like how it was supposed to turn out didn't happen so it's about the gauchesco way of life which is uh basically like cowboys they work on argentinian ranches and they're nomadic and you know they live on the land and they're very much seen as like a very romantic argentinian kind of life lifestyle Amazing. Um, and they were Sounds kind of dreamy yeah and they're kind of dying out at the time that Hinastera wrote this piece so it's it's his romantic imagining in the complete ballet of a single day dawn to dawn in the life of a, an estancia and so is this going to include any harmonicas to <laughs> give it that sort of cowboy feel or is it i i mean disappoint me? it could i'm gonna play um the wheat dance Ooh. which yeah so each of the um movements in the ballet suite that gets played now there's um five sorry I had to count on my hands just then um there's five and so the first movement is the land workers then it's the wheat dance then it's the rodeo then it's the twilight ideal and then the final dance is the malambo um and that is when the gauchos like they have this like really rhythmic dance where they all challenge each other like it's like a physical contest through dance sounds amazing (laughs) Sounds Actually. like West Side Story. Yeah. I'm loving it. I know. It has so, like, so many references <laughs> when I was reading about it that I went, oh. Yeah. So this is one of his like most famous orchestral pieces. And the last movement I've definitely heard, um, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra under the dude, you know, Gustavo Dudamel. I've heard them play yeah. the last movement. <laughs> the but when I was listening to the piece, the second movement, the Wheat Dance, is so beautiful. And I Ooh. just thought, I just really want to share it actually. So let's have a listen. Bring it on.
I was making a lot of noises you while were, I listened actually. to that. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, ooh, uh, it was... It was naughty. It was good. Yeah. I liked it. I it mean, was wheat dance, wink, wink. Real good. <laughs> like, am I right, ladies? Uh, no, I honestly am delighted. I'm delighted by that. I literally have no idea who this person is. Well, I mean, I do now, thanks to you. But that is stunning. I'm literally saving it as we speak, oh, no less. That's what I want to hear. I, I want to listen to the rest of it now. That's stunning. Yeah, so I really wanted to play that particular section for you because the final movement that we were talking about as well you know the danza finale Mm -hmm, of the malambo mm -hmm. is like Mm. really driving and very much in that like i mean it's about people who are like fighting through dance so right you know obviously you can imagine that it's going to be much more up tempo much more vibrant in that kind Mm of um driving rhythmic way and Mm -hmm. i think some of his other music as well like another piece that i was going to choose but I wanted the contrast is a piano piece of his where like the bottom hand your left hand is playing white notes and the right hand is playing black notes and so it's like a C major versus D flat which are like two keys that shouldn't work together at all and yeah like it's kind of like what but um he makes them dance like the pianist literally dances these two keys around each other it's really really Mm. clever there's Marta Argerich it's like one of her pet pieces so go find a recording of her doing it if you want to I've just gone off topic and told you about a completely different piece but yeah he's just got so much variety in what he writes it's really interesting well I can't wait to hear more that classical podcast Great. So the next piece I'm going to tell you about, Kelly, is written a little bit later. And this is the piece that I heard that made me go like, who is this Alberto Hinastera? That's okay. So as I said, this was my driving CD. And this is his string quartet number one, which he wrote in 1948. And it was premiered at the ISCM Festival in Frankfurt. So this is one of the works that he had this period of time where all these music started being premiered overseas and Mm -hmm. um, like his second string quartet got premiered by the Juilliard string quartet. And so all of a sudden, like all these other ensembles and directors and people around the world were like, who is this guy? This music's amazing. And basically put Hinastera in a position where he could pick and choose his commissions. Like he no longer had to, yeah, no longer had to be like looking for opportunities or just taking whatever was offered. He could really just put forward what he wanted to do. So this is the okay. first of those pieces. It's his string quartet number one. Um, mm-hmm. He said as well that this is the seminal example of his nationalistic idiom. Um, that's a lot of words, but basically I was going to say, <laughs> can't you? That's great. I think basically he said that it was all these motifs and the music of the pampa and it was all about like his impressions of the landscape of Argentina. So he said mm. like the great grass plains of the Argentinian interior and every time he went there, he's he said, my mind was invaded by different and changing impressions, gay or melancholy, full of euphoria or calmness. There you go. Ooh. So it was a very dramatic 
state of mind that he was in. And I think um, I'm going to play the first movement. I think as you hear it, you'll hear what I'm talking about. that that's your driving <laughs> CD because um, I feel like that would give me road rage or just like incredibly like a sharp pang of anxiety every time I listen to it. But uh, aside from that, I think it's good. Yeah. I think it's really good. I just, the stress levels of listening to that in a car while you're like speeding around a corner. <laughs> oh, like, I just, just to, can't imagine. I, to, to like put you in the scene, it was my highway music. Like I used to have this really long drive on one Even day week. And I'd just be like, it was just so like exhilarating. And I'd like, oh yeah, you could do some drumming while you hit the steering wheel. It was great. I can actually imagine you doing that and it's quite sweet. But um, I, do you know what though? I, I, st- I do think it's amazing. Mm. And I feel like this composer, Hinastera, Ginastera, yeah, is super underappreciated. Yeah. I've never really heard anyone speak about him and I've never heard anything performed by him. Have you seen anything in concert? No, do you know, I haven't seen anything. And I'm really sad because I just think it's so full of colour and movement and... There's still lots of tunes like he could write like as we had that really luscious romantic stuff. And I think it's just music that we don't get to hear in concert halls. So my challenge to orchestras of the world, play more Yinastera. And if we want to explore him a bit more, is there there any other works that we should go for or just a general kind of dive in? Do you know what? I preparing for this today, listened to just a stack of his orchestral music and I was Mm. really Mm. overwhelmed with what I was going to choose because I just didn't, it was all really, really good. So I think like go to your favorite music playing app and just go have an explore because it's, there's lots there. Um, his piano music I haven't listened to as much, but I do know that Marta Agarich, as I said before, has recorded a lot of his music. So maybe she's someone her. else that if you want to go look at her catalogue, if you like her playing. And he wrote songs, he wrote operas, like just so much music that just I, I've never, I've not had the time to delve into, but I've touched the surface and I love his music. So there you go. Classical podcast. So that was our episode on Hato hey Villalobos and Hinastera slash Ginastera, however you want to say it. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it and you want to drop us a line, Sasha, where can these lovely people contact oh, us? Oh, you can contact us in all the ways. The main one is that classical email at gmail.com. We love getting your emails. Thank you if you sent us one. We do read them all. Or you can get us on all the social media platforms as well. So Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram, we're at that classical. 
So make sure you come and join the family. And if you uh, really, really enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to leave us a review. Any stars, welcome, but hopefully (laughs) five. Five. uh, On your uh, podcast, favourite podcast platform. We'd really appreciate that as well. But otherwise, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.